Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 226 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Comeback, an interview with Liz Campbell. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, we named this episode The Comeback because this young woman had to come back from the challenges that she faced during her childhood. She contracted Lyme disease as a young child, and she had to overcome the limitations that are placed on all of us by the medical system. But even more importantly, she had to overcome the challenges that children have to overcome when their loving parents try to help them overcome Lyme disease. Rich, what was so powerful about this interview with Liz is the fact that she kept getting a little bit better and then would crash. She'd find another treatment modality that would get her a little bit better and then she'd crash. She spent a good portion of four years bed bound until she finally found something that helped her get into remission and stay in remission. In fact, she used the same tool to help her brother, her sister, her mom, and her dad get their health back and live their best lives. So Matt, we know that the only way that you're going to heal from Lyme disease is by taking radical responsibility for your health. We also knew that children had a longer journey, but we didn't understand why. And this is a young woman who taught us why children have a longer journey back. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce the comeback in Liz Campbell to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Liz, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hi, I am so excited to be here and so excited to just connect with y'all and share my story a little bit. And we're really excited to connect with y'all as well. We, we like to interview people who say y'all because we don't say that up here in New York. So it's really <laughs> exciting to have you on our podcast. So Liz, in the spirit of uh, letting everyone know how diverse we are here at the Tick Bootcamp podcast, uh, you, you are clearly not a New Yorker or a person from the North. So why don't you begin by sharing with our listeners where you're from? I am from Clemson, South Carolina. It's a little town in the South near the mountains. And I love it. All right. <laughs> we say y'all a lot. <laughs> All right. So let's talk to us about your background. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Uh, and uh, what was the educational experience like? Yeah. So I grew up in Clemson also. I've lived here for the majority of my life. And I would say I was pretty straightforward. I um, well, actually went to private school for elementary school and then was homeschooled for a couple of years in middle school. And then went to public school and high school. So I feel like I got the full array of <laughs> schooling experience. Um, yeah. And so what, so what was your what was your cultural experience like? Uh, what kinds of things did you do for fun? What kinds of uh, activities did you engage in outside of school? Yeah. So growing up, I loved art. I was always into arts and crafts. And then once I got a little older, like second grade, I got really into dance. And so that kind of took over my whole life. From that point on, I was dancing for about five days a week, a couple hours a day. And I had dreams of becoming a professional dancer, um, really wanted to be a rocket. And so, yeah, that was, that was like my one goal. I just was like, I'm going to be a dancer and make that happen. So, so you wanted to come, you wanted to come to New York and you wanted to dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that would be the dream and I thought that would be so fun. Um, but things changed. <laughs> so, and, and that's the, that's the reason we have you on the podcast. We're going to talk about those changes, but before we get to those changes, let's focus on uh, what your outdoors life was like. I mean, I, I imagine people who are living in small towns in, in South Carolina probably have an outdoorsy experience as well. So talk to us about that. Oh, for sure. Yes. And my dad is like Mr. Outdoors, man. Um, so he grew or we grew up 
and he, I have two other siblings who would take us camping, like, um, a lot of the weekends in the summer and the spring and the fall while it was still warm. And we were just outside all the time. I mean, growing up, like, I mean, I'm pretty young. <laughs> I'm only 23, but growing up like 10 years ago versus now, it was just like, you spend all your time outside, like um, playing and playing with friends and stuff. And so I was outside, I would say majority of the time, whether that was in the woods or just in the backyard. So now when your dad was taking you camping and you were doing those types of outdoor <clears> activities, <throat> I'm sure there were a number of instructions that he gave to you to make sure that you didn't get hurt. For example, when your dad would, would pitch a fire, um, you know, I'm sure your dad would say to you, be careful, don't get too close to the fire. Let's keep water close to the fire. Make sure you don't get yourself hurt. Was your dad giving you those kinds of safety instructions so that when you're out camping and you're in the outdoors, you wouldn't get hurt when you were coming in contact with wildlife or anything like that? Yes, he gave us the full rundown. He grew up in the woods and like mountain biking and hiking his whole life. So he would, yeah, give us all those safety precautions and teach us survival skills and all that good stuff. So if God forbid the zombie apocalypse had arrived, Liz and her siblings were more than prepared to live in the outdoors <laughs> and keep yourself healthy and alive if you were in the outdoors, correct? Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> all right, so talk to us about what your dad taught you about ticks and tick diseases. Did your dad teach you anything to help you to stay safe uh, from tick vectors so that you wouldn't get sick from a tick bite? Um, I mean, it was always just like check for ticks when we got home from like either hiking or camping, but that was kind of like the extent, like you can get a disease because like, I'm sure like, I think someone, like one of our family friends had gotten sick, but we were just kind of like, whatever, okay. <laughs> So you were, you were generally aware because your dad was a good man who wanted to keep his children safe and he was giving you some instructions about something you should do. You should check yourself for ticks, right? Because you could get sick. But did that really make you concerned about getting sick from Lyme disease or was it just something that happened to other people and you really didn't take any particular steps to keep yourself safe from tick diseases? Oh, 100%. I was just saying, I'm living my life. That's that's not something I'm like really concerned with and I'm invincible. <laughs> well, again, let's, let's talk about that in, in some more detail, right? You were a child, right? And, and there were people who were giving you instructions about the things that you should be doing to keep yourself safe, right? As I, I have four daughters, I, I um, have been very aggressive about uh, giving my children instructions about how to stay safe from a number of different things, like, you know, like strangers in the community or, you know, or, or don't cross the street when cars are coming off. Oh, watch out for aggressive dogs. Right? I mean, there are all kinds of things, pool safety that we would, I'd give my children instruction about. I never gave my children any instructions about tick diseases and ticks. And I grew up in, you know, in tick central. So was your dad better than me? Meaning did he give you very specific instructions about how to do tick checks and when to do them and how to protect yourself by using, you know, bug sprays or any other tools, or did he just sort of give you this general warning? Don't get bitten by ticks, do some checks and hopefully you won't get sick. Um, I would say like, he actually made us like check for ticks. Like when we got home before we went in the house um, and before we like got around our dog too. So I guess so, because we like actually would have to take that step. But I feel like that got looser and looser as we grew up. Now, were you only doing these tick checks after you were were 
on a camping trip or were you doing tick checks every day? Meaning was that a part of your routine every single day where when you get up in the morning, after you take your pajamas off, you check yourself or, you know, or after you get out of the shower, you check yourself. And then before you get into your pajamas again, I mean, were there's this regular tick checks that you would do every single day, or is this just something that you sort of did in passing after you had been on a camping trip? For sure, only after camping or, or a hike. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about your educational experience. So you uh, grew up in uh, South Carolina, in rural South Carolina, right? And uh, you would expect that as part of your either health courses or as your, uh, your science courses, you would have been taught about ticks and Lyme disease. So what do you know about ticks and Lyme disease from this very diverse educational experience that you had? Um, yeah, nothing from my education. I would say only from like word of mouth of, again, like a friend that I really didn't know about who had just been sick for a long time. And I'd heard Lyme come up. But yeah, um, so I actually... In the town I live in, Clemson, we have a huge university, so lots of um, just studies, research going on there. And yeah, I did not hear anything from that very like educational hub. There was right. just so, nothing about Lyme. So Clemson University is a stone's throw away from where you uh, live, and I'm sure you you are very familiar with the Clemson football team. Are they as uh, are they as aggressive at Clemson about transferring information about um, health issues to folks in the communities. They are about transferring information <laughs> about uh, their their Saturday football games. Oh my goodness, no! I would say football is number one priority over here. Um, Lyme disease is probably like what? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so very, it's very low. So you know, you know a lot about um, about, for example, the what's what's the name of the coach of the Clemson football team? Dabo Sweeney. All right. So you know a lot about Dabo. You even know his name, right? And who is the mm -hmm. famous uh, quarterback that uh, just made his way into the NFL as the as the first draft pick of uh, uh, in the NFL? Trevor Lawrence. You know oh, his stuff. So we, we know all about, uh, we would call him Dabo, and all about uh, Trevor Lawrence, but not a whole lot about ticks, right? Right. All right. So so let's, let's, let's fast forward. So talk about... <clears throat> Talk about when you first started to feel the, oh, actually, let me, before we get there. So what were your goals that you were setting for yourself when living this, uh, living this rural South Carolina life? Where, where did you envision yourself being when you grew up? Um, again, like I wasn't necessarily someone who had like a picture of like, I'm living in this house with my five kids and my husband in Blink 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 City, I would say I just love dance and I was just so passionate about it. And that was kind of all I could think of was like, make it past high school and hopefully audition for companies and see what I can get and where I can go with that. All right, so you're pursuing your dream as a dancer, you're dancing five days a week, you're really doing everything you can to finally make it up here to New York. Uh, not to come on the Tick Bootcamp podcast and talk with me and Matt, but you wanted to, <laughs> you wanted to be one of the Rockettes who are now, uh, who are now performing at Radio City Music Hall during, during the Christmas season, which uh, uh, we have certainly here as New Yorkers seen almost every year of our lives. You know, we, we go to the Christmas show all the time. So you wanted, you wanted to be one of those people on the Christmas show. And uh, how, did, uh, how did your now illness begin to develop and interfere with your vision for becoming a dancer, a professional dancer? 
Yes. So um, things started to change when I say things, I mean, like my health, I really started to get very tired my second semester, my freshman year of high school. So I'd been dancing for like, uh, I think eight years at that point. And yeah, I got what we thought was the flu for like three weeks, which we know doesn't last for three weeks. And um, I kept going back to the doctor like every week um, I had been sick with this flu-like thing. And he was just like, I don't know, like keep resting. And um, yeah, after that, that was like, January, February of my freshman year of high school, I was just exhausted. I was so tired and I could barely even go to dance. I would have to like come home from school and not go to dance directly or like take a car, take a nap in the car on the way to dance um, or just sleep in a back studio when I got there some days because I just couldn't, like my body just didn't have the energy to go. So, um, yeah, dance just was kind of like something I got through in the day instead of like what I love to do and like what I continued to get better and better and challenge myself with. So that completely changed. So your so your passion now became became a job, right? And and something that you you enjoyed more than anything now became a task. Um, and so first of all, talk about what that did to you, right? I mean, now you, your, your, your whole identity at that time was built around becoming a professional dancer. Everything you were doing was working toward that goal. How do you feel now that this dream that you had of becoming a dancer was now becoming a task? Yeah, I would say, honestly, it was confusing. Cause I was like, I mean, being a dancer, you have so much just awareness of your body and how it works. And, um, like everything was just like to be able to perform at my best, like what I was eating, what I was doing, like when I would go to bed and like all of that stuff. And so it was just really confusing at first. Cause I was like, is like, hopefully this is just going to like go away soon, you know? Um, but it just didn't. And it was really discouraging because I put so much pressure on myself um, that like, I was just lazy and I should just try harder. And like, I just need to get my, um, self together and, you know, move through this. But I just felt like I let myself down, honestly. So let's talk about your family. Um, you said that, um, your parents were obviously very much invested in you and the identity that you were developing as a dancer. How were your parents responding to your inability to perform at the level that you had been performing as a dancer? Yeah. I mean, for them, it was just like what happened. Like we, they believed in me more than I did at that point. Cause they were like, they just saw this like 180 switch and they were like, we know this isn't you. Like, we know there's something wrong. And so they actually pursued like getting me tested for like autoimmune disorders and like doing some more alternative things. Cause my mom had always been like someone who was into like, you know, making diet shifts to help your health and trying alternative stuff. So she was someone who was like, okay, there's something up. We need to get our daughter back. <laughs> so, so you, you at that time were, working with your parents to try to create an environment where you would have the best chance of achieving your goal. You were changing your diet. You were going to dance classes. You were, you were setting appropriate, uh, you know, bedtime. So you would get adequate rest. I mean, you had all of these things going on. You were very much in touch with your body 
and you knew something was wrong, right? So you now you and your parents decide that you're going to go to a doctor. So talk to us about the doctor that you went to when you had this flu and you went over and over and over again. And what was the doctor saying to you each time you went back? Yeah. Um, so it was just like my regular pediatrician. He was like, we got to stop meeting like this. <laughs> like, why are you here? And um, he was just like, yeah, I can run some tests. Like, what do you want me to run? And which I think is really awesome for um, someone in his position that he was like, my mom was like, I want to run these things. And he was like, okay, sure. We'll like run whatever you want. Um, but it wasn't until like a while later, like I would say nine months later when she was like, I want to test for Lyme. And they were very adamant about why, why, why would you want to test for Lyme? We don't even have that here. You know, like we're not going to do that. So at first it was like, yeah, like I'll like kind of help you out. However, but it was just like test after test kept showing nothing was wrong. So, um, yeah. So you, so how long did you have a relationship with the pediatrician before you had gone to him or her or them before, uh, you had these now this severe fatigue that you were feeling that was interfering with your ability to continue with your, uh, pursuit of, um, a professional dance. Yeah, he had been my doctor throughout my whole life up until that point. Right. So this is this is a doctor who knew your entire life, knew that you are not a malingerer, knew that you weren't lazy, knew that you were this really driven young person. And he also knew that your parents were very supportive because they were also helping you to try to achieve these goals that you were trying to achieve. And and the doctor, the doctor is testing you over the course of now almost a year. And, and he finds nothing. There's nothing wrong with you, right? So at some point did the doctor, and we'll get to the Lyme testing in a minute. At some point did the doctor suggest to you that there was nothing wrong with you, that perhaps, uh, or I should say, there's nothing wrong with you physically, that you were, you were dealing with some emotional or mental health issues, and that perhaps you should be seeking another type of care. So that doctor actually never brought that up. He said that I probably had chronic fatigue and the best thing that he could recommend for that was to like wake up earlier and go for a walk in the morning, um, which still just kind of makes me boil inside a little, but, um, walk it off. It was like, uh, yeah, like like well, that's, the, but isn't that what you folks do at Clemson? You know, like if you're, if you're, a, if you're a football fan and you take a hard hit, you know, as a, as a football player, you get up and you walk it off. Right. So maybe that's the advice that they just give everybody in Clemson when you have some kind of a, uh, some kind of a, uh, serious, uh, illness. I don't know about that, but yeah. Um, it was, it was interesting. And yeah, but to answer your question before, so he sent me to like so many specialists. I don't even know. Cause I was partly out of it and partly it was just like doctor after doctor, after doctor, after doctor. And at those, after so many like dead ends with those doctors, um, at least like a two or three were like, would pull my mom aside at the end of a meeting. And we're like, you know, she's a teenager. Teenagers get depressed here's a counselor. I think this will help. So I, I did get that answer a lot. Like it, it is in her head kind of thing. All right. So, so now did your parents ever believe that perhaps you were suffering from mental health issues and did they take you to any, um, any uh, mental health professionals? They didn't. I mean, they knew that that is like helpful for anyone, but they knew that there was something wrong with me. Even when I was like, am I making this up? Like, am I just like faking this? Like, do I just need to like snap out of it kind of thing? And, um, but again, like 
like I said, like they, they believed, like they knew that like, it wasn't just something that was all in my head. They knew that there was something wrong with me because I guess the shift that they could see that I couldn't necessarily see like the outside view from. So Liz, how, how are your siblings dealing with your parents giving you all this attention around your illness? And did your siblings ever believe that perhaps you were doing this for attention? Mm, yes. Um, I had a younger brother. And at this point, my older sister, she had gone off to college. And so it was just us two in the house. And he would like jokingly, but not jokingly, like say, like, stop faking it. Like, just get up off the couch. Like, why are you doing this? Like, just like why can't you like pitch in and clean and do chores like she's just faking it kind of thing so that was really really hard to hear because I felt like I was telling myself that too right so talk to us about how your your friends at dance class and how your friends at school were treating you now did you go from being Liz the dancer to Liz the sick girl or did was there something else that had happened with you and your and your social um contacts yeah. So at this point, um, actually six years ago, like Monday, um, I completely crashed, couldn't go to school anymore. Couldn't go to dance anymore. I had kind of like been getting by and like living a somewhat normal life up until that point for like nine months since I had that flu, um, experience. And then I just couldn't do anything. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't, um, couldn't even get off the couch in the morning I mean it was like a struggle to get from my bed to the couch and then lay there all day and so I just completely I kind of fell off the face of the earth and yeah like at first my friends really missed me and it was like really hard not to see them a lot and um but after about nine months of me just being on the couch it was just kind of like what happened to Liz like because I didn't have the energy to even be like (laughs) like communicating with them, texting. And, um, and when I did see them, I didn't have an answer because I didn't have an answer for myself. And I was just embarrassed. I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, no one, no one seems to know. So you went from Liz the dancer to Liz the ghost and lost contact with your friends altogether. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. So let's talk to us about how that made you feel that you were no longer able to have social contacts at all. And do you feel that your friends had abandoned you or did they still still try to stay in touch with you? What was that like? I would say um, the first, cause I was sick um, like at this level of sickness for about five years. So I would say the first year, like they were really sweet and would like come visit me and come sit with me. Even when all I could do was like watch TV and not really even talk or laugh or anything. And so that was really sweet. And I had like definitely some like core friends, like, really stick around but it was really hard because I not only felt like my friends had abandoned me but like I felt like I had like abandoned myself because I was just like who is this stranger that I have become like I just don't even recognize her and similar to you Matt like I had gained so much weight in such a short period of time and like like I literally did not even recognize myself in the mirror so it was just very isolating and felt very lonely. You said that at some point your mom had asked your doctor who was very happy to give you any diagnostic test you wanted or your parents wanted until until she got to Lyme. So talk to us about how your mom settled on Lyme and what the reaction was from your doctor when your mom asked about the Lyme testing. Yeah. So, um, 
I think like my mom is just always like looking for like alternatives, like outside of the box medical kind of things. And she had just been doing research. And I think talking to some friends and family friends and was just like, I think we need to test her for Lyme. Like, it's just like this mystery illness with all these crazy symptoms. And this like would make sense that this is what she had given I grew up outside. <laughs> and um, so she was like, okay, we need to like ask my doctor to start running these tests, like the Western blot test, which is standard Lyme test. And he was just like, why? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, like I can, but you're not going to find anything, blah, 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 blah. So it was kind of like, yeah, I will, but I really won't. Um, and so then she started taking me to kind of more alternative, um, guy, we actually called him the witch doctor (laughs) because it was so just like out of the ordinary at that point, he did muscle testing, which if you're not familiar with, it's using your body's own natural strengths and weaknesses to test what it's stronger weak to. So he actually was the one that was like testing me for line through that and was like, I think this might be your problem because nothing else is showing up. So, so that was really pause, weird. Liz, let's pause there for a second. So this, this pediatrician had been working with you and your family for your entire life up to that point, who had been happy to test you for anything that your mom wanted you to be tested for and kept coming back with results that there was nothing wrong with you, paused when it was time to test you for Lyme disease. So Give me what your reaction was when your mom was asking the doctor to test you for Lyme disease and, and he is now hesitating to test you for Lyme. What was your reaction? I was kind of like, that's weird. I was also very out of it and very much like, this is my fault kind of thing. Like I do need to just like try to figure out how to get better. Um, and like do that on my own. And so I was just kind of like, that's okay. We'll just go to the next thing kind of thing. But she was like really adamant on like, no, like this is insane. This is crazy. Like we do have Lyme disease here. Like you can't just like, it's not just in one isolated place. Um, so I would say she was more adamant about it. And I was just kind of like sick and tired and <laughs> like, whatever. And did you, did you, did you, have a sense that perhaps you didn't even have the right to make that kind of a demand for those kinds of tests. I mean, where were you emotional? Yeah. I was just like, well, he's the doctor. He, he knows like, why are you pushing this? Like, why are you making this more uncomfortable for me? So, so Liz, where were you in your journey? You said that you had crashed. Um, was the, was the refusal to recognize Lyme as a possibility by your pediatrician, before or after you had your physical crash where you couldn't go to school any longer? It was after, like okay. I'd say about a month after, yeah. So now let's talk about uh, let's talk about your mom now rebelling against the system, rebelling against a traditional doctor and now saying, we're now going to go somewhere else and we're going to, we're going to take, we're going to take a, a, a different route. And you were saying that, um, of course, you, you in your mind had this very, uh, traditional mindset where, you know, the industrial medical complex tells you, you come to us, it will give you a pill and we'll get you better. And you don't go anywhere else. Your mom rebels against that. And she's like, Nope, my daughter's sick. I believe in her. She's going to get better. We're going to go wherever we have to go to get this kid better. And she takes you to the witch doctor, right? Uh, what type of doctor was the witch doctor? Um, or what kind of a practitioner was this 
doctor who you in your own mind, clearly by calling this doctor a wish doctor really had some doubts about whether or not this is somebody who could help you. And you were still buying into that traditional medical mindset. What were you, what were you thinking at that point? I was just like, oh my gosh, it's just another one of my mom's crazy things. I just have to go with it because I literally have no other choice at this point. And um, she was like, well, blah, blah, so-and-so and so-and-so has seen improvement. And this person who has this thing has seen improvement. I was like, okay. I mean, like, I guess I'll just like show up. I didn't really have a choice either. I couldn't drive. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Right. I was just like, Showing up. So, so you, you were just so sick that you had to be compliant anyway, right? And whatever your mom was going to ask you to do, you just had to do because you were so sick. Yeah. So what was the experience like when you had gotten to this uh, practitioner who is now using muscle testing rather than some other diagnostic tools? Um, it was weird. It was really weird. I was like, okay, this is odd um, because he was putting these different vials of like bacteria, viruses, even foods um, to test me to see if I was like, had sensitivities to foods or if I had those viruses active in me. And so it was, it was definitely odd and I was, it, it felt like the witch doctor. Um, yeah. Uh, that's all I can say. <laughs> Pretty much. So when did you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis? I Meaning, did you get diagnosed through the muscle testing or did, were you diagnosed in some other format? Yeah. So, um, about, so this was spring of my sophomore year. So I'd been sick for about a full year. I had been like really, really sick after the crash for about, um, six months to nine months at that point. And by the time summer came, so I had been on full homebound for school. So I was like months behind having to catch up, had a teacher come bring me my work every week to try to like catch me up and take tests at home and all that stuff. So that was very stressful on top of already literally having no energy and um, everything that was going on medically. And so by the time summer came, it was like that um, stress of school had lifted finally once I finished about a month after everyone else. And so I was feeling a lot better. I was actually like going out and doing things because I didn't have that pressure of like, oh my gosh, I missed another day. Oh my gosh, I'm another week behind kind of cycle going on. And um, so I was doing better. And then I was able to go back to school. Um, we adjusted my schedule that next fall for my junior year so that it was easier. And I didn't have to like go as early because mornings were really challenging for me. And then I crashed a month in because nothing had changed. <laughs> I just That stressor of school came back into my life and my body couldn't handle that. So then it was worse than before. And we started looking into doctors like further away. So then we went to a, um, I, think, I think he was called an environmental and functional doctor. Anyways, he was down in Charleston, South Carolina. And so we started going to him and he was an expert at helping people with these mystery symptoms get better. And he had seen Lyme so much and he had done so much um, research and testing into my case that he knew that even though I didn't test positive, that's when he tested me for Lyme actually with the Western blot, even though I didn't have the like exact markers for it on that, he knew that I had Lyme. So he diagnosed me with that. Um, about a year and a half after I initially got sick my freshman year. So Liz, it sounds like you were sick for about a year and a half before you got your diagnosis, correct? 
Yes. And about how long was it from the time you first got sick until your crash? I just want to make sure I understand the timeline here. You were about a freshman in high school. So I guess about 14 when you got sick. And when did that crash occur? Was that your sophomore year about when you were 15? Yes. Um, actually, like Thanksgiving of my sophomore year. So it was about nine months. And then about six months later, you got diagnosed because you had the crash and you started seeking alternative doctors to help you, it sounds like. Actually, uh, almost a year after I crashed, I got diagnosed finally. And you mentioned that the Western blot was not positive, but there were some bands that indicated potentially Lyme disease, correct? Yes. So you think that you were fortunate enough to test with this alternative doctor, because if you're a pediatrician were to test you and you came back, you know, slightly positive that he would have dismissed Lyme altogether. And maybe you would have walked away from that thought process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That was a big blessing. And he even did like his kind of treatment. Um, I don't even remember what it was. It was some kind of frequency or um, homeopathic treatment, I think. And I felt better for two weeks um, back in the spring of my sophomore year, but then I crashed again after that. So did, were you diagnosed via muscle testing as well, or, is, or was it just pure, purely clinical? Um, yeah, it was pretty much just clinical at that point. And when you were diagnosed, was, was there a tr an immediate treatment? Because it sounds like you went back to school and then crashed shortly after seeing the natural doctor. Yeah, so um, we saw the functional and environmentalist who did officially medically diagnose me Um about two months after I crashed the second time from going back to school. And so then he started putting a plan into place. And so it wasn't immediately, it wasn't like I got diagnosed and I went back to school. It was, I crashed again because I was doing really bad. And we were like, okay, we need to seek something else out. So once you developed this, this treatment plan, what was, what was the first thing you decided to do with your medical team to start treating Lyme disease? They were doing a lot of supporting the body's immune system. So I did, oh my gosh, <laughs> I wish I could remember better, but um, the different things to support my thyroid, different things to help with um, a different like homeopathic treatments um, to help with different allergies that we're testing because that was the big thing they did. Um, and then... Yeah, it wasn't till further on along down the line that I think I started actually treating for to kill the Lyme, but he wanted to like support my immune system and the rest of my body so that it could hopefully fight the Lyme off. So Liz, what was that like for you? Because you were so sick. It must have been frustrating to hear. We're just going to start supporting your body and then start working on killing off the disease that's making you so ill right now. Honestly, I didn't really even think about it like that because he was so confident in what he was doing. And he was like in his 90s, I think, and just really had done a lot of research and was actually helping people get better. And so I was just like, I'm here for whatever you say, because he actually took time to get to know me and care for me and like um, was just very intentional with everything he did. So I was like, I mean, you're the master. <laughs> so, so Liz, you believed you were going to get better. You had faith that you were going to get better with this doctor. Um, looking back, I would say I was 
questioning but at the same time I was just also like hoping to wake up one day and just magically be better but I wouldn't say I was like this is what's going to get me better so from that same standpoint of looking back we've had a lot of people tell us that they've jumped right into treatment and it was too aggressive for them. Other people have told us they've jumped right into treatment and it worked for them. But we hear the most success stories when practitioners with patients like us first start to rebuild the body and they do this preparation phase where they rebuild the immune system, they open up detox pathways, they open up drainage pathways. So looking back, do you think that that was a really important first step before taking the kill protocol or the actual antimicrobial protocol? Um, I think so because my body had taken a huge beating just from fighting this chronic infection for who knows how long. I mean, I could have had this since I was born um, from information we later found out down the road. So my body was so depleted that it needed that support so badly. So let's let's take a a side here and talk about that. So you said you found out some information later on that had indicated maybe you were born with Lyme or possibly had congenital Lyme disease from your mom. So what information led you to that possible conclusion? So about four, three, four years down the road from what we were just talking about, I went to another doctor um, in Atlanta, Georgia, and he had a test that was out of, I think it might even be New Jersey. Yeah. And it was very accurate. And so he tested me for that. I tested positive on that. And then my whole family started going to him because my brother had had health issues too, as I was experiencing these. And um, then my sister ended up after I got better having similar health issues. So my whole family ended up getting tested and everyone tested positive for Lyme. So your brother, your sister, and your mom all had Lyme. And my dad. And your dad. So we're going to come back to that as we get to that part of the story. I think it's important to, to have that background now because you probably were sick from, from essentially when you were born before, through, through, uh, through birth. So let's talk about before we go into what you did next after preparing your body for treatment, what specifically was done for this prep? You mentioned that your thyroid had to be worked on and you took some homeopathic. So what specifically, do you, if you remember, were you taking to prepare yourself for the treatment? Um. Honestly, it was just so long ago and my brain fog was so intense that, um, yeah, it was just things to nutritionally support me and start building up um, minerals, vitamins that were low in my body and because my body wasn't absorbing anything for who knows how long. And then, yeah, just helping with other like chronic infections, I think Epstein-Barr came up along the way. Oh, this is important. Mold. He was a doctor who found out we had mold in our house because I tested for mold. And so that kind of explains some issues my brother was experiencing alongside of me. My parents didn't have any problems, but we got all of that remediated, taken care of and sealed. But he also helped us start getting the mold out of our body too. So Liz, how did you get tested for mold? Was it through muscle testing or was it through some sort of lab work or blood work? It was lab work. Uh, I think it was urine, maybe some different blood markers too, I want to say. So once you came back positive for mold, which sounds like it was around the same time as your Lyme diagnosis, what sort of remediation did your family have to take to address the mold? It sounds like in your home. 
Yeah, uh, we had to completely get um, underneath our house, completely like re-vented. <laughs> I don't know. That's not the specific word for it, but they sealed the um, and encapsulated underneath our house so that water couldn't get in because we'd had a huge flood about a year before I started experiencing symptoms. And there was water that we didn't know that had gotten trapped. And then they redid the um, HVAC system, I think, in our house and got all of it out. And yeah, so it was an so, intense process. So for, for time comparison here, how long did it take for the mold remediation to occur? Was that done before you started your actual kill protocol for Lyme disease? Um, yes. So we started seeing this doctor... September, October of that year. So this is now my junior year. And then that was immediately like set into place once they found out we had the mold. Um, so that was happening November, December, I think. And then I started doing some, and I would say with this doctor, it was kind of all like, we'll see if we even need to treat the Lyme because your body might be able to support it at that point. So it wasn't like we're doing this to then treat the Lyme to then get you like that's going to be better. It was just kind of like, this might actually get you 100% better. So it was, it wasn't necessarily like we're doing this to then treat the Lyme. If that makes sense. It does. So let's just talk about that a little bit more because we do know that chronic Lyme disease is an opportunistic or, or and stealth pathogen. And it, there's a lot of other factors that lead to chronic illness from Lyme disease, many of which are a very common one is mold illness or things like that. So when you, when you remediated the mold in your home, you were still just on the supplements and herbs, it sounds like, and, 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 you know, diet changes to help your body get rebuilt. Did you see a noticeable improvement in symptoms at that time? I didn't, I would say it took until the next April for me to start seeing some improvements. And again, like, as y'all know, when you're experiencing this disease, everyone is going to be like, oh, well, you should try this, this, and this, and this, and this helped my friends, uncles, aunt, and <laughs> all, just you get all the suggestions. So at that point, someone had told us to try some kind of um, taking a few drops of some kind of like very strong hydrogen peroxide, I want to say. So I started doing that for a month and miraculously just like felt so much better. And I want to add now looking back, my sister's wedding was um, coming up in that June. And so I was like, I have like, like I believe like I have to do something to see changes. So I think that also was a part of it. Like, like that need to actually get better at some point to be better for something. Cause I had just honestly lost all hope. And I was like, what's the point of even getting better? So it was like, I finally had something to get better for <laughs> to be there um, and stand by my sister for her wedding. So I think that also added a lot to that. So Liz, I do want to ask, once you found that you had this mold toxicity, what were you doing to address the mold in your body as well? Because obviously you remediated the mold in your home, but were you taking binders? Were you taking anything specifically to help your body detox or eliminate the mold from your system? Yes, I was taking different binders and some um, different medication. It was worked similar to a binder, but again, 
I apologize. It was just everything was so fuzzy and so cloudy then that I don't even remember what it was. No, and I totally get it. When you're that sick, it's really you're an autopilot at that time. If you, what, and that's for what you can even remember. So talk to us about, was there a change from doing the body preparation stage or, you know, addressing your thyroid, homeopathics, building your immune system, herbs? Did your natural doctor ever pivot you over to a more, more aggressive kill protocol? And if so, was that before or after the hydrogen peroxide when you did that and had that, that game-changing addition to your treatment to feel better for your sister's wedding? I think he started, um, again, <laughs> through the cloudiness. I think he did do um, some different antibiotics, um, maybe at that point, but I know at least a year later when I had crashed again, <laughs> um, that I went on antibiotics a year after that I did the hydrogen peroxide. So this is a year after hydrogen peroxide, you had a crash. Is that correct? Um, about eight months after. And then finally, cause he wanted to hold off. And so did my mom, cause I'd had bad reactions to antibiotics in the past, um, on doing doxy for a while. So he was like, I mean, we can try it kind of thing. Um, so we finally tried it. Um, when I was graduating high school, my senior year, and it made me so, so, so sick. <laughs> so time-wise, was that about a year and a half later? Cause I think you mentioned it was about November when you started with this doctor on the immune support and the rebuilding of your body. Uh, so how long, how long was it from that point up until the time you had your, your next crash when you were put on the antibiotics? Yeah. So, um, November, I started like that fall, I started working with, the uh, um, functional doctor. And then I did the peroxide for a month and had so much more energy that summer. My sister got married. I started my senior year of high school, actually went to high school, um, again on a limited schedule, but was still going to actually graduate, which was really exciting <laughs> considering I missed who knows how many days, hundreds of days at that point. And so I was actually able to like go to school that first semester, of my senior year, which was a year after starting working with that um, functional doctor. And then May after that ending of senior year, I started doxycycline. So yeah, about a year and a half later. So what was the thought process then? Was your, was your functional medicine doctor thinking that all of the natural stuff, the herbs and the and the rebuilding of your body was just not enough and you needed some extra support. And that's why you went on the antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. And was it just oral doxycycline, Liz, or were there other um, prescription medications or things that you went on as well at that time? Um, I, th I know it was just oral doxy, um, but I feel like maybe there were some antivirals along with that. I'm not sure he had, he did have a protocol um, of something to go with that, but I don't remember. So you mentioned you felt like really, really sick. So did your doctor warn you about the herxes that you can get from antibiotics? Yes. That's why he wanted to hold off, um, as long as possible. So walk us through what the herxes were like. So give us an idea of, of how your symptoms were impacting your life before starting doxycycline and then how those symptoms got even worse once you started the medication. 
Yeah. So before it had just been this overwhelming, debilitating fatigue I had experienced and then brain fog um, and then weight gain and um, some digestive issues all throughout that two and a half years leading up to that point. But then when I started Docti, I had the most intense joint pain, especially my legs, um, keeping me up at nights and my insomnia got so much worse. And so it really just kind of became a living hell at that point because I couldn't sleep. I was in pain all the time. I was beyond exhausted and the pain didn't go away after the doxy ended either. So that was really, really frustrating. So you mentioned you, how long we were on the doxy for Liz at that point? Um, I think, I think it was a month. And you and your your symptoms flared or increased as a result of the doxy. And you're saying when you finished the doxy, they never went back down. Your your pain levels stayed at the high level they were from the Herx reactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at this point, you're getting worse and worse and worse. You had a crash at the end of your senior year, which led your doctor to put you on the doxy, which made you feel even worse. And now your your body stayed at that that increased pain level after the doxy. So what were your next steps at this time with your doctor? So um, we decided to kind of start looking for a different route because I wasn't able to go to school. And I was like, okay, I have this year, I'm going to take off and then I'm going to get completely better and start living my life like this never even happened. (laughs) And so I, uh, we were doing a lot of research on different centers to go to different protocols to try. Um, I know y'all had Dr. Rawls on here. We looked into his And, um, I don't think I ended up doing that, but yeah, looked into all the big treatments and treatment centers and all of that. And, um, ended up going with the doctor, another natural, uh, naturopath. Actually, this was the first ever naturopath I went to. The other ones were always functional, um, medical doctors. And so, because, again, like a friend of a friend had recommended him or like a family member. And I didn't really want to go to this naturopath doctor because I was like, we don't really know if there's like proven results to this. And, um, I just want to get better. I was like, we need to do something that's proven to get better. And so I started going to this naturopath in Atlanta at this point, um, starting, the fall after I graduated high school and I got the sickest I have ever been. I was doing very intense herbal protocols, um, also doing a lot of different things to open up my detox pathways, doing lymphatic therapy, um, drinking like 64 ounces of juice a day. It was a very intense protocol and I it got to the point where I could not even move some days without having my parents help. Um, I remember having to like butt scoot my way down the stairs, um, just to, yeah, get anywhere on my own. And it was definitely my lowest point. So Liz, at this point, you're treating with a new naturopathic doctor in Atlanta and you're feeling the worst you ever have. And you were feeling really pretty badly prior to that. So did this doctor tell you that that was expected and you should just fight through it because you have to get through that in order to heal? 
Yes, partly. And then also um, she was just kind of like, oh my goodness, you're like nothing. Like I've treated people so much sicker than you. You'll be better in a month kind of thing. And so that kind of rubbed me the wrong way at first when we started working together. But then I was also like hopeful because I was like, oh my gosh, this this is a breeze for me to get better. Um, But then I got so much worse, so much worse. And it was just like nine months later and I was still in that horribly debilitated spot from pain, fatigue, brain fog. It was just like every, every symptom I'd ever experienced was just at an all time high. So I, I just, I'm feeling so sad for you here, Liz, because you keep treating with these doctors who are making you feel even worse than you were before treatment. And you're not really getting any results out of them, it seems like. So at this point, you're nine months in with this new naturopath in Atlanta, and you're feeling even worse than ever. Do you decide to stay on the stay course and treat with this doctor or do you pivot over to somebody else at this point? Um, so at this point, I, again, like I had mentioned earlier, um, I had just kind of, I wasn't, I was completely debilitated and I didn't really have a brain. <laughs> and so I was just kind of at the mercy of like what my parents thought was best. And so I, I did not want to go to this doctor anymore. And I was like, I know that like, I have literally, like I'm literally absorbing nothing. And she was recommending like me eating raw and doing all these juices and all that. And I just wasn't absorbing it. So I like started, like I was, I got on Instagram at that point and started kind of like looking at what other people were doing and what was working for them. And so I knew like getting at nutritional IVs and stuff like that was really going to help me. And um, so then I was like, we need to get her to like prescribe that for me. So we started getting those in an area in Greenville, which is a city closer to us. And so I would go there twice a week to get nutritional IVs. And um, then I started doing ozone treatment with the doctor that we were getting the nutritional IVs um, in her office from. And that was helping. And so I was just kind of like, we gotta, we gotta start like doing our own thing again. and yeah, it, it was helping until all my brain, my, not my brains, <laughs> my veins blew out. And, um, so I couldn't get them anymore. So then I plateaued again and, um, yeah. And so then at that point we were like, the best thing to do was me to get a port implanted in my chest. So that's what we did. And it was be a quick, easy process. And then the doctor who put it in, put it in too deep. So it wasn't accessible. And so then it took another two months of them, like actually having to verify that it in fact was not accessible by like testing that by putting a needle in my chest, like a hundred times. Um, it was very, very traumatic. Um, but they finally removed that one, replaced it, got another one. That surgery was its own traumatic experience in and of itself because um, the nurse practitioner I was working with to get that replaced didn't think the surgery was going to be that intense because it was like ports aren't that intense of a surgery. But when you're that sick and then you basically have two surgeries in one, getting one out and putting back in and then stitching you up it was awful. So I had no pain medicine prescribed and I got home that night and basically had like this out of body experience because my body just could not handle the pain. And, um, yeah, that was, that was probably the scariest experience of 
me being sick was just like, I think I might actually die in this moment. Um, but thankfully we had some, I don't know, some pain medicine stored up from when I, um, had had like wisdom teeth surgery or something in the past. And I was able to like get through it without having to go to the ER. And I recovered from that within like a month or two started the IV treatments again and was stable. And I started taking two, um, classes actually at Clemson university. And so I was like, okay, I can handle this. I'm like able to like see people my age again and like drive myself to class, which felt really good because I couldn't really drive for like two, uh, a year and a half of me being so, so sick um, since I graduated high school. And so I felt like I was had some sense of normalcy and then I crashed again um, that December. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I just, I just can't keep living my life like this. So yeah don't remember your question but i feel like no no this is so, so, you, so you crashed track. you crashed again after 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 the class so so i just want to make an observation here liz because you were treating for like two years in high school and a little bit and then a little bit after high school with at first a functional medicine doctor and then a naturopathic doctor and when you and i don't mean to be to be rude about this but when you blindly put your faith in those doctors you just simply weren't getting better when you then decided at that point when you were nine months into the intense herbs and detox protocol by the naturopath in Atlanta, you said enough is enough. And you had such brain, brain fog, but you still did research and said, I want IV ozone and I want IV nutrient, uh, nutritionals because I know my body can't absorb things. And you started to feel better because you were listening to your body signals. And Rich and I, you know, we've now we're calling it body signals, but you were really listening to what your body was telling you and you started to feel better. So I think it's that's a really important lesson that you just share with us that people have to listen to their own body signals and, and partner with their doctors and not just have their doctors tell them, do this, this, and this, but you need to be able to be a partner and collaborate with them and say, look, this isn't working. I need to try something else. I read up on this. What do you think? And have that sort of relationship. Because when you did that, that was your, your turning point where you went from being the worst you ever were to being able to go back to take college classes again, which is incredible when you think about that, you were bed bound and then you were taking college courses, right? And that's all thanks to you and, and you listening to your body and telling your doctors what you needed, right? So, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Oh, I 100% agree. Um, I think, again, we're just like taught like medical doctors, the professionals, they know your body better than you know your body. But the truth is, they don't live in your body. <laughs> they aren't listening to everything your body is telling you. And everyone is so uniquely different in how their body reacts to things and how, what works for who. And so I completely agree. Like you have to listen to what your body is telling you in order to be able to move forward. And so it can trust you and you can actually get better. So now when you did the IV ozone and the IV nutritionals, you started taking the courses and then you crashed. When you had that point of your crash again that December after starting classes, were you still, did you still have the port in and were you still getting IV ozone and supplements when you crashed? I was, yeah. Um, and at that point, it just kind of plateaued again. I had gotten to the point where I could like drive and take two classes and kind of live and um, manage it. But I was just like, I am so freaking tired of just managing. And that last crash of me having like drop out of school and just literally be on the couch all the time. Again, I was just like, 
this, this is it. Like I am getting better. I'm choosing to get better. Whatever I do next is going to work. And um, a part of me like putting just like a leap of faith in that was I had signed a lease on an apartment to live with some people. And that was me being like, okay, I'm starting school in the fall. I'm moving out. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be able to take care of myself. And the rest kind of like worked out from there. And um, I, I'm not sure if y'all have heard of SOT treatment, but I found out about the SOT treatment and got that in February, January or February of that year. And um, I was like, this is going to work. It makes sense. It's got to work. And I got it. And within like a month and a half of getting that, I wasn't seeing any changes, which I know it takes time to see changes. Um, But I had heard over and over and over again from my parents and from some of our friends who um, their son had been completely laid flat on his back for a year with POTS after getting some kind of just like cold a year before that. And so he had just been flat on his back sick for a year and he did this like brain retraining program and miraculously was like hiking in Utah (laughs) like two months later. And I was like, okay, that's cool. It worked for him, but he doesn't have Lyme, but he's not been as sick as me. And so I just kept putting it off months and months and months. And then I was just like, okay, I'm getting this SOT. I'm getting better. Um, and it's not working at the speed I want it to. So I'm going to start like making these changes and actually take control and like, let's get this train moving and get me better. So although I was like, this is weird. This is so hippie. Um, woo woo. <laughs> I just wasn't about like, I didn't know what retraining the brain meant. Um, I jumped in, I did this program and it was really overwhelming. It was a lot of changing, um, just at the root of like, what I, what I say to myself all the time, what are these limits I put on myself that I had to adapt to just to survive and make it through and changing how I saw everything in my life. Cause everything in my life at that point was something that made me tired was something that made me sick or walking up the stairs was what was going to wear me out. Um, talking to someone was going to make me crash. Um, driving my car was going to be something that was so exhausting for me. And so that able, that, um, just like brain retraining aspect of healing allowed me to actually like change my lifestyle from this like sick lifestyle of like everything in my life makes me crash. It makes me exhausted to, Oh, I actually have the power and I can move forward and I can, actually be healthy and I just needed that like mindset like complete reset to um start thinking how I would if I was already the healthiest version of me so between the SOT and retraining my brain I completely got back to 100 I wouldn't say 100% I got to like 70% and was running running like which I hadn't done since my freshman year of high school um that April at the end of April. And I started all that in March and February. So it was absolute whirlwind, absolutely insane. Um, just got my life back in like overnight, it seemed like, and it was so, so crazy. 
So Liz, I just want to, I'm thinking back to your journey here and what really were the game changers or the immediate game changers in your health. And I think the hydrogen peroxide gave you the first boost to help you improve. Mm -hmm. Then it was the IV ozone and, and nutritionals. Then it sounds like the SOT a month and a half in didn't really work too well. But then when you were more patient, it started to work little by little, but not quick enough for you, the SOT. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then you realize, well, I want to do something else because it sounds like you were afraid of another crash because every time you get a little bit better, you'd crash again. So this time Liz decided I'm feeling better, but I'm not going to stop because I refuse to have another crash. And you found brain retraining to, to complement the SOT to ensure you wouldn't have a mm -hmm. follow-up or subsequent crash. But what specific brain retraining program have you done? Because we know there's, there's DNRS, we know there's Gupta, we know there's vital side. And many people have had success with all of them, but we're curious which one you specifically used. And it sounds like within a few months, Liz, you went from being, you know, a little bit better to being able to run and getting, you know, your health almost fully back at that point. Yeah. Um, so I did the DNRS program, um, the boot camp, and I watched the videos. I actually was so against it until literally my mom sat down with me and pressed play on the first video. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was just like, this is too weird. I can't do it. Um, but yeah, I did DNRS and you're exactly right. Like the SOT, um, I I believe it was going to work, but I was like, I, I just want there to be no guess if I'm getting better at the end of these like 100 days that it's supposed to work in or whatever. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it, even though this is so crazy. And it worked. I just got my life back and it was crazy. So Liz, you're not the first person to tell us about brain retraining and having like amazing success. In fact, Dorothy Leland, who's the vice president of LymeDisease.org, her daughter went through a similar journey as you, where she was sick for many years, kept treating and having this, you know, up and down, up and down journey. And once you got to the point where she was at the end of her journey, she's, she capped that off with DNRS. And that's what got her into remission. And she's been in remission ever since for many, many years. So as, as wacky as it may sound to our listeners, we have heard time and time again that many brain retraining programs like DNRS, like VitalSide, and like Gupta have been the final piece of the puzzle for people to, to reach and stay in remission and to have that their, their brain literally rewired to their, their pre-illness state. So I just want you to talk about that for a little bit, though, though Liz, because, and, and we talked about this a little bit with past guests, that when people hear brain rewiring, they think it's not in my head and they get frustrated because we've, we've been dismissed by doctors. We've been told we're crazy. And when somebody says you need to rewire your brain, we immediately get defensive and think, I'm not crazy. It's not in my head. You don't know what you're talking about. I have Lyme disease. Like you said, right? I have Lyme disease. I'm not my friends. You know, I'm not that same person, but it worked for you. So how is brain retraining different than saying you're just depressed or you're just anxious because they're really not the same thing. And I think we need to be clear that brain rewiring is not just saying you need medication because you're depressed or anxious. It's a completely different concept and process. So can you talk to us a little bit about the differences there? Yes. And I love that you brought this up because that was exactly where I was at. Um, I was just like, if I give into saying that if I do this program to retrain my brain and I get better, that's like me validating every single time that doctor said, just go see a therapist, just go, um, you're just depressed or you're just anxious or whatever. And I was just like, I can't give that validation to them. I can't give myself. I can't like, um, emphasize that belief in myself that still thought I was just faking it. And it was still in my head because whether we know it or not, we carry those beliefs and those doubts in ourselves, um, from the beginning of our journey 
until we rewrite that belief, which is what those brain retraining programs are for. And so I finally was just like, okay, I'll get a try. And um, what I learned once I finally started the program, and then that actually just was the start of it for me. It launched me into like doing my own research and um, doing a lot more research into the emotional side of healing and letting go of just so many limiting beliefs and so much emotional baggage I had held on to throughout my whole journey with Lyme. And then I learned like it was actually started like my whole life. Um, it didn't just start with Lyme. And so I think one really important shift for me was like learning like, oh my gosh, okay, this number one is not like just letting myself um, kind of allowing what those other people said about me to be true, but it was like giving myself the biggest tool in my toolbox, like, like actually taking advantage of my brain, which is so incredibly powerful and getting, um, getting it on my team to help me heal instead of having it work against me um, and telling me I'm still sick. I'm never going to get better. Um, like I said before, everything in my life makes me crash. That was just kind of like, once I became aware of what I was thinking when I was feeling tired and when I was feeling exhausted throughout my day, it was over and over. This is just going to make me tired. This is just going to make me crash. This is going to make me feel worse, whatever it was, whether it was brushing my teeth, going to the bathroom, taking a shower, you know, it was like everything in my day I had programmed my brain had programmed to protect me, to remind me that like, this is going to make you tired. So conserve your energy because that's what I needed when I was sick, fighting that chronic infection, but that wasn't serving me anymore. And so I think realizing that it's like, it's not giving in to the doubt, it's overpowering that doubt with um, tools that can actually get you better and get you out of these cycles and learning like that, like professional athletes have to like use these same tools to get past mental blocks when they can do their um, craft and perform their sport. Like they're the best of the best, but they have those mental blocks that literally keep them from physically doing what they are able to do. So I think learning that like, it's not giving in, it's just actually helping yourself get better was huge. So listen, just to expand upon what you said, and I love how you said your brain was programmed to protect you and you were sick, but you didn't need that anymore. And it was actually hurting you. So when your brain was programmed to protect you and you became sick, your the electrical signals in your brain actually changed, meaning your brain chemistry actually changed and it got stuck that way. So you had to use DNRS to basically unprogram that sickness or those sick frequencies in your brain to tell your brain, hey, it's okay, I'm not sick anymore. We can, we can slowly unravel this. And that's what I think DNRS is all about is, is putting your brain or getting your brain out of that sick state of mind with all of those signals that are used to protect you when you're sick, essentially, correct? Exactly, yeah. So I do want to ask, um, I know I'm taking up, Richard's probably going to kill me because I've been talking to you for so long, but I have to ask one other <laughs> question because it's, we talked about it. When you, you mentioned your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister got tested and, and diagnosed with Lyme disease, was that at the doctor in Atlanta as well? Or was that another doctor who eventually diagnosed your family? Yeah. So this doctor actually was in Atlanta, but he was the doctor that administered the SOT for me. Um, and so then my brother ended up getting the SOT and both my parents and um, 
Yeah. So it wasn't the naturopath in Atlanta that did in nine months of stuff that made you sicker. This was another doctor in Atlanta who gave you the SOT. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. And, and now are you, just, just as a, as an, a side note, how are your brother and your sister and your parents doing today? Are they, did, did they use similar treatment pro- protocols? So, yes. Um, <laughs> so um, my parents, they never really had any symptoms from Lyme. They just wanted to get the SOT so that they would, it wouldn't turn into anything later on. And then my brother got the SOT about uh, the summer after I got it. So like only four months after I got it, which was two years ago, two and a half years ago. And, but he didn't see any changes in his symptoms. And he had been diagnosed with narcolepsy throughout that whole time I was sick. And, um, so he was just kind of like managing his symptoms with medicine, but was like falling asleep a lot until this past spring when he came to me and I had, um, done a lot, like I said, of research, worked with a lot of other mentors and created something to help me when I had crashes after I retrained my brain. Cause I did, I was, I mean, I went to school, I moved out into that apartment and I still did um, crash a little bit because I didn't know how to handle the stresses of everyday life effectively, because that was a pattern that had happened before. I was just such in that all or nothing overachiever mindset. Like I have to do whatever it takes to reach my goals. And so I had learned a lot um, through the past two and a half years since I initially got better on how to end that cycle of burnout and crashing, um, even when you're at like 70, 80% to be able to get back to 100%. So he came to me and he was like, obviously you're doing something that works. So he actually was my first client and I helped him retrain his brain, create um, just lifestyle changes and um, get out of those self-sabotaging cycles to get his symptoms better. So he was actually able to take like an internship this summer where he was working from six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, six days a week, which was, we were all like, what did you do signing up for this? And so then he, again, like had to get to a point where he was able to do that. So he worked with me and we got him there and he's been doing great sense and has so much more energy, so much more confidence. And um, it's been really cool to see him transform. And then with my sister, she saw his improvements and she had gotten really sick um, the year leading up to this past spring. And she wanted to try it out too. She was a dietitian and she knew um, what she needed to do to get better. But, and she knew that brain retraining obviously worked because she'd seen me and my life was the proof that it worked, but she was like, I don't know if that can work for me. So then she saw Thomas get better, my brother. And then she tried it and started working with me. She was actually my second client. And um, it was crazy to see her transformation because she had already, she had the tools, but she just didn't have that support. And so she just went from like being in bed most of the day to um, starting applying for jobs like a month later. And it was, it was really crazy. So it's cool to see like time and time again, how it does work, like how y'all heard time and time again on the podcast, like this is just it. It's what you need. It's, it's that compliment that you need to the physical treatment. 
So Liz, it's so, it's so cool to see you validating in three experiences what we've identified as patterns over the last two years that when people are treating and they're getting better at the end of their journey, many of them need brain retraining to be able to sustain remission or, or a functional happy life. And you did it, right? And then what better testimony for you in our business as, as a coach to be able to have, have helped your brother? And then your sister, and I believe your third client was one of our favorite podcast guests, Julia Fagelman. Is that correct? Yes, Julia was amazing. And it was so cool to see her too. She had a very quick transformation, like my sister, um, throughout our 10 weeks of working together. And then it was also kind of cool to see, not cool, I know it was really challenging, but she definitely experienced the dip after feeling so high and so good in such a short amount of time. So we were able to like work through how to create that steadiness, how to create that balance and make sustainable health like actually possible. So just really awesome to be able to see, like, I feel like I love Julia so much and I obviously love my siblings so much. So been cool to see them and my other clients, people I've just grown to care for so deeply get their life back and like be able to live their dreams and um and yeah me be able to live my dreams even though those have changed like um I'm not a rocket but I don't really know if I want to be a rocket <laughs> anymore but I feel like I'm living the dream so my final question before Rich takes over I promise Rich is you just given us something else that we really would like to expand upon is brain retraining is very powerful but it does produce a very high high and when you level out, you can have, I guess, a sort of emotional crash because you're so used to living on that, that, you know, high. And then you had to learn it personally first. You mentioned that you did so well, you moved out, you got an apartment, but then you had these mini dips or crashes and you had to use what you learned in brain retraining through DNRS to pull yourself out of those dips and bring yourself back up to a normal, healthy baseline. So is that common with DNRS and brain retraining where when you start to feel really good, you're eventually going to plateau or baseline and then people, you know, struggle because they're not at that high they were previously on. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I can't speak for DNRS because I um, only like really partially did the program and saw such a high. Um, and, but I do know from my own experience and from working with my clients, you do, it's like, you go from like, I can't do anything to I'm on top of the world. Like I actually have energy and I can do things. And so it is kind of almost like an adrenaline thing. So you have to learn how to, again, control that fight or flight system, which is what you do when you're retraining your brain. Um, but learn how to control that in everyday life situations and um, like learn how to not let things stress you out or learn when you are stressed out just from simple things like we do the grocery store or you've just had a busy week because you're a normal human being now you're not sick how to take care of yourself and learn how to calm your nervous system and self-regulate your nervous system and so that's been what I've grown to be so passionate about is just researching learning and now I'm getting certified in neurolinguistic programming which helps you just create those lifelong sustainable healthy patterns that just like normal people need um, in order to stay healthy but especially people that have been through an experience of chronic illness so Liz let's talk about your experience as a child with Lyme because one of the things we've observed in this podcast is 
that children who have Lyme disease have a very different experience and a very different healing journey than people who, who contract Lyme either as ad- adolescent, I'm sorry, as, um, as young adults or as, as older people, right? And um, we've actually found that children have a much longer journey and a, and a much greater struggle. And in listening to your story, it sounds to me like you may have identified some of the reasons why that's the case, right? Because you were a minor, you were doing what your parents were requiring you to do. You were going to whatever doctors they wanted you to go to. So you were never really asked to take responsibility for your own health, right? And it became more difficult for you to do that because you were a child, right? You couldn't select your own doctors. You couldn't drive yourself there and you were really, really sick. So in addition to being sick, you had somebody else taking care of you and you just had to follow that path. So Matt had identified that you didn't get better until you began to take responsibility for your own health. And talk to us about what inspired you to do that. And what was that trigger that ultimately brought you to the place where you were now uh, giving your parents input and then finally taking responsibility for your own health? Yeah, I think it was just that like light bulb went off in my head and it was just like, this is up to you. Like, if you want to see change, you're going to have to make that change. You're going to have to take the action steps to actually get better because you just like following. And um, I I don't want to like make it sound like my parents were just like forcing me to do whatever, but they obviously have my best interest in mind, but it was just like, until I was able to take that radical responsibility for every part of my life, I wasn't going to be living the life I wanted. And I've seen that time and time again, after I've gotten better, but in that moment of me being sick, it was just like, this is up to me. Okay. I'm going to make it happen. So it seems to me that one of the challenges that anyone on a Lyme journey has is that we have been um, we've been raised in a culture where we believe that we're supposed to hand our health over to doctors, right? They are the people who are responsible for making us better. And I guess the secondary challenge that someone who has a Lyme diagnosis as a child is you have a second layer standing between you and radical responsibility, which is, of course, your parents, right? So it's not that your parents aren't good people, they didn't love you, or they didn't want what's best for you. But unfortunately, even good parents are actually a layer of, of, of or a barrier um, between you and radical responsibility, right? And it isn't until you take responsibility for your own health that you're ultimately going to be on the healing journey. And I think part of that, of course, is, is the, you know, is the body signals that Matt talked about before, right? Your parents, no matter how much they love you, can't receive the body signal. They, they, they can't feel whether or not it's working or not, right? Your, your doctors can't feel your body signals. They don't know if it's working or not. And of course, and they have a number of different constructs between them and, and your healing, which limit what they can do, even if they want to help you. And if they did feel it, right? If they give you a test and you don't get, and, and the test doesn't say you have X, they can't do anything. It's against the law, right? So we have all these different barriers between uh, a child and health. And, and unfortunately, parents are one of those barriers, which I never really understood until now. So I really want to thank you for sharing this portion of your journey with us. So um, 
Now let's talk to talk a little bit about um, about another part of your childhood experience, which was there were doctors who were encouraging you to see a mental health professional, right? And um, and because you were gaslit by doctors, or because you were feeling gaslit, you really didn't focus on the mental health element or the neurological element of the um, of your journey. And it wasn't until you overcame that, and of course the gaslighting became a barrier to you doing that, that you finally were able to heal. So talk to us about whether or not you would recommend as part of a healing journey, not just building a team of uh, the practitioners or um, uh, healthcare professionals who could help you with your physical health, but don't you think at the same time, you need to have practitioners who can help you with your emotional health and your neurological health. And perhaps maybe your journey would have been shorter had you not resisted that and had your parents not resisted that and you had worked with mental health professionals earlier on in the journey. Oh, 100%. Like I, and I did see a counselor like a couple times in high school because I was just like so deeply depressed um, in the middle of all of that. But uh, I wish I could have just gone back and like given them like a me or like some of my other friends that are coaches to just like be like, what you're feeling is not who you're becoming. Like, cause that's such a big thing with Lyme is like, you don't feel how you used to, you feel like you've lost yourself. And so you start attaching to these new feelings of like hopelessness, sadness, exhaustion. Um, even like a lot of our physical appearance changes, you, you attach your identity to those changes. And so it feels like you've lost yourself, but just having someone on your team that can remind you that not only like all these things that are happening aren't happening against you. Like you are going to learn and transform from this and become a better version of yourself. Life is going to get so much better after this um, than it even was before you got sick. But to have the tools that you don't have to stay stuck in that hopelessness, you don't have to stay stuck in all of the things that you're feeling and you don't have to stay stuck in your physical senses either just having someone believe that that is possible for you, I think is, is a life changer and like changes the whole game in your healing. So Liz, now when you were talking with Matt, you were, the, the question that Matt had asked you is whether or not you believed you were neurologically stuck in these, in these um, unhealthy pathways, right? Now, do you believe what's happening is, is that your brain is stuck in an unhealthy pathway because that was what your body needed at an earlier stage in the process? Or do you believe that you begin to just rely and get accustomed to um, uh, being protected by a certain set of emotions and those emotions are what are ultimately your home and you can't leave those emotions and then start to use more positive emotions like gratitude and appreciation and other types of healthy pro or healthy emotions. I think it's a combination of both because what I've learned throughout this whole journey and throughout my own education is that our body is always, always looking out for our best good. It's always trying to protect it in the best way it knows how, but sometimes that is destructive to us. Hence being stuck in a chronic illness for um, however many years it could be. And so part of it, I think, is like our body's natural protective mechanisms kick in and then we get accustomed to those and we stay in that 
that lifestyle because it becomes a lifestyle. And um, so I think part of it is number one, changing how you think at the root, but you can't just do that alone. You have to start taking the action steps to push out of that, um, out of your comfort zone that has been this chronic illness lifestyle. So Liz, one of the, one of the uh, people I studied argued that, um, that most of what we do, we do automatically, right? We, we sort of had these emotions that we've, we've become accustomed to relying on for the entirety of our lives. And even though we don't know it, we are just sort of in this mode of just doing things that we're accustomed to doing in it, and it becomes rote, right? And many people sort of, uh, you know, even before they have their Lyme disease experience have already engaged in this sort of relying on a set of emotions that become rote, that they don't even re realize they're relying on, which then of course makes them more vulnerable to getting sick, which then of course becomes this loop where you're just getting sicker and sicker and sicker because you already had begun to rely on unhealthy emotions to begin with. Um, so if that is truly accurate, um, and then we have to sort of make these changes. Do you think it's important that we begin this neural retraining very early on in the process? Or do you think it's something that we do at the end and it just sort of becomes a cherry on top? Because when Matt and I were first confronted with this, you shared, he had shared with you that we had interviewed Dorothy Leland and she said her daughter really didn't get better until she went through the neural retraining. Um, I've always wondered whether or not we should, begin, we should begin the neural retraining immediately because we may have already had a set of emotions that we're relying on that allowed us to get sick in the first place or made us, made us vulnerable in the first place. Or is it something you think we should be doing at the end after we've already had success in sort of killing the bugs and, and, and getting ourselves um, healthier? Yeah. So I believe, I'm not a medical doctor, but I believe that it isn't whether you get sick with Lyme and like just get sick with it. Um, because as I'm sure y'all come to know, like so many people are just walking around with the Lyme bacteria that, that it doesn't affect them. So I believe that it is a cycle of chronic stress that you get stuck into and your body um, learns to adapt to life in certain ways um, and deal with stress that aren't actually helpful and healthy. So you put your body in an environment where it's already stressed out. It's already in this fight or flight mode. And then it's kind of like this example of the elevator. One of my doctors taught me, you get too many passengers on your elevator, it's not gonna go up. So you have too many stressors built up on your body causing your nervous system to be in this constant state of panic and trying to keep you safe and protect you and everything in your your outer environment becomes a danger to you. And then that's when the infection that's already been in you can have a place to live and grow and thrive and take hold. Or you get infected when you're in this state of, of super stress, like maybe you've just lost a loved one and then you get bit by a tick and then it can have a place to grow and thrive. And so I think it's, I, I truly believe that you can, and it's, case by case, but I think that like, why would it make a difference if you start changing the beliefs about yourself at the beginning or the end, because those beliefs aren't going to change whether you're healthy or sick, because we have the power to create beliefs about ourselves that um, are different than what our current reality reflects back to us. And that's how you make that lasting change. So I've seen like in my sister, 
she didn't, um, she didn't end up getting the SOT because we started working together and she had such incredible improvement. She got back to living her life. Um, and she did do other things like she takes thyroid medication and stuff like that, but she didn't need the SOT, but then other people have gotten the SOT and then later on, or, or another treatment later on, they plateaued or they didn't get the results they necessarily want, or they wanted to speed up the process and then they were able to get better too. So I think it can happen either way. And I think it also depends on how willing you are to believe that it is going to work for you. So let's focus on that a little bit more, Liz, because I think you've just made a brilliant observation, which is most of us are probably walking around with the Lyme bacteria. When we interviewed Dr. Rawls during one of our past podcasts, he had said to me, I guarantee you, Richard, if we tested everyone on Long Island for Lyme disease, at least 90% of you would be walking around with the Lyme bacteria, right? So it's very likely that we have, we are now all, you know, carrying the Lyme bacteria. And I believe I am along with everyone else. There's a small subset of us that ultimately become chronically ill after having contracted the, um, you know, coming in contact with Lyme bacteria. And part of that reason why we are, um, we are getting chronically ill is because of our mindset, right? What emotions we're relying on, where our emotional home is. And in fact, it is partially in our head, right? So we feel like doctors are gaslighting us when they tell us that it's in our head. But the truth is, it may be in our head. It may be the emotions that we're relying on having nothing to do with the, with the contracting the illness. And if we are, if we are treating with a mental health professional, in many cases, that will help us to shorten the journey and perhaps put us in a position where we don't have to go through a neural retraining because we didn't get stuck in that fight or flight mode as a result of our body responding to the physiological elements of the bacteria. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think it's interesting um, just to like the way you word it, it made me think about like at the beginning of the journey, like a lot of the times we're like blaming Lyme for everything. We're like, well, Lyme's the reason I'm depressed. Lyme's the reason my life isn't the way I want it. Lyme's the reason that my whole life is a disaster, but we aren't in a place to take that radical responsibility yet. So when our doctor does say like, hey, and it could be like with the best intention, like, hey, I think this would help you we're like, no, <laughs> we aren't in a place to receive that because we aren't taking radical responsibility in anywhere else in our life. So it's until you can shift that, that mindset to be able to actually receive that help and be in a place where you're ready to change, I think is, is the biggest part of it. So, but it seems like we're, we're, it's much easier to take radical responsibility for some elements of our healing and harder for other elements of our healing, right? For example, if, uh, if, if the doctor said to you, you should be eating better, I'll take responsibility for that. You should be sleeping better. I'll take responsibility for that. But when it comes to a doctor saying to you, Hey, you need to take radical responsibility for your emotions and your emotional home that we call gaslighting that we say, we're not going to do. And now we find ourselves in a position where we are now more comfortable with being a victim. And of course, having a stronger or more reinforced emotional home that is not serving us on a healing journey. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of it is like, 
I remember for me, when I started this whole like brain retraining program, even before that, I've been working with someone who had kind of become like a life coach to me, like for a year ahead. And just the thought of like, I'm not a victim. And I, at first, like, that was crazy to me. Cause I was like, no, like, like I am a victim to Lyme disease. Like you don't get it. Like I am a victim. And then, and then you like slowly like move through that process and grow. And then you're like, oh wait, like, like that was, that was what was keeping me stuck. Um, was that victim mentality and not being able to take that responsibility. So I completely agree. And so Matt talked to you a little bit earlier about the wisdom of your elderly doctor, much older than me. He was in his nineties, right? When uh, he first started working with him, where he was, he was before he began recommending that you go through this kill protocol that you, that you go through this process of preparing your body opening up your, your detox pathways and preparing your body for the treatment. Do you likewise believe that had that doctor had more wisdom that he would have also recommended to you that you begin a process of opening up your neurological pathways and revisit your, your emotional home before you began the kill protocol as well? Yeah. And now that you're saying that I actually forgot because part of their protocol was every patient meet with their life coach but I don't think they knew their life coach very well because the whole time I was talking, I was just telling him my story. And he said, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for you. And he was like crying. And I was like, um, it's okay. It's going to be okay. So you became his life coach. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, so that also kind of turned me off. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. <laughs> well, and what he was also doing is unfortunately playing into your, your flawed emotional home, right? He was just sort of adding mm -hmm. to you relying on unhealthy emotions, which quite frankly is why you got sick, right? I mean, let's just be honest, yep. right? So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we, we interviewed, we interviewed a really brave young woman named Rachel Roller, who actually said it is all in our head, right? She was the first person to challenge us and say that it is all in your head. And, uh, you know, it, and, and she's one of the few very brave people have said that, but I think you're saying the same thing as well, right? That we yeah. shouldn't be, we shouldn't be rejecting this, uh, this concept of it being all in our head, because quite frankly, it is right. Or at least if it's not all in our head, it's certainly partially in our head. If we're going to define our emotional home as where, you know, as being in our head. So let's talk about your transformation because it's been a beautiful transformation, right? And, and you, you first had to go through this process of accepting responsibility for yourself, um, even though you were a child and even though you had very, very wonderful parents who were trying to help you through this journey, they couldn't do it. No one can help you through the journey. You must take responsibility for your own emotional and physical health if you're going to heal from Lyme disease, right? And you've done that. And you're now coaching other people through that, including some of the people we've already interviewed and love um, in, in, many, in so many ways because of, 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 of their vulnerability and, and the work that they're doing in the community. So um, talk to us about your transformation and how you went from being, you know, a young woman who wanted to be a professional entertainer on, uh, you know, at Madison Square Garden, or I should say, actually at Radio City Music Hall to now being someone who's now helping other people through their, through their Lyme disease journeys. Yeah. So at first when I got better, I was like riding that high and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to the doctor again. I'm never going to talk to anyone with chronic illness again. <laughs> like I am getting out of this community because I am like, that is just not who I am um, anymore. And so I had a lot of resistance to um, just even like talking to people that were still sick. 
And um, because I felt like it brought up something in me that I didn't want to be reminded of. And, right, so let's say um, that for a second before, before you take the next step, right? Because you had abandoned that unhealthy emotional home. You had now located new emotions and you didn't want anybody to pull you back to a place where you were being validated by those unhealthy emotions. So you had to build past that before you could help everyone else, correct? Yes. And that took a while. And I think um, for a while I was like, felt guilty that I did that. But now I see that you have to do that in order to create a solid foundation where you're not getting triggered by everyone else around you that's still in that place you were at because you have to heal that part of you. Um, so that's what I did. I took a long time to heal. I did a lot of emotional healing, um, worked with a lot of different mentors, um, invested in a lot of different trainings, read a lot of books, well, listened to a lot of Audible, um, <laughs> and um, just tested everything out for myself until I found something that worked for me because it opened this, like, like DNRS was literally just the start. It was just the beginning to like open me up to this whole new world of like taking radical responsibility for every part of my life. And like, if I'm having a bad day, okay, how can I, how can I choose to show up and change my response to this. So yeah, it was just throughout the two and a half years for me getting better to starting coaching. It was me crashing, trying things, burning out, learning how to actually feel again. And um, which was something I don't think I'd ever really done since I was a kid um, because I was just very independent and very much like, I don't have time for emotions. And I even remember before I got sick in high school, I would like have so much, I would like get home from dance at like 930 and like have so much to study for. And like, just like my world felt like it was falling apart and I'd be like sobbing. And I just couldn't hold on to all this like emotional stress anymore. And I would just burst and then I'd be like, I don't have time for this and just move through it. And so I actually learned how to like start like, processing life and knowing that it's okay to like not feel good all the time not feel happy all the time that's actually how you do experience happiness majority of the time well but Liz, you, uh, you, you also learned how to use emotions that would serve you rather than emotions that wouldn't serve you right i mean you said that you're 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 beginning to study nlp right and and the and the and the underlying philosophy of nlp is to make sure that you're using emotions that serve you, right? David Desteno, for example, the psychologist from, I think he's at Northeastern, uh, takes a position that there are three emotions that will serve us. Yeah, he, he talks about uh, in his book, um, Emotional Success, gratitude, compassion, and pride, right? And how you rely on these positive emotions, which will then serve you as opposed to the negative emotions, which were a part of the home that allowed you to get sick. Yes. And, um, and just really like, I feel like gratitude, it, it is like a huge mindset shift in and of itself, because before I got sick, I was so focused on what was going wrong in life. And then it was like, now literally I wake up and I like excited to like go do my day, even if I'm not necessarily like having the best day or or like loving what I'm doing that day. But now because I've made that shift and I focus on what is a gift in my life today? What do I get to receive today? Like life is actually beautiful and I get to live it. Um, now I get to live in that place. And it's not because my external has changed. I, I mean, I'm not sick anymore, but I mean, 
like living at my parents' home at 23 and building a coaching business was not how I saw my life going, but I absolutely love it and adore it. And there's still things in my everyday life that are challenging and stressful and are not always easy. But now I have this new shift where I get to choose how I show up and and what emotional state I want to be in. Right. And you've discovered what your gifts are. And even though at 23 years old, the ripe old age of 23, you're not exactly <laughs> where you want to want to be, right? It's you are where you're supposed to be and you're at peace with being mm. where you're supposed to be. And you're now building a framework where you're not only having uh, living the life that the best life you could live, but you're also helping other people to learn how to live the best lives they can live. And that's what God created you to do. And that's what you're now doing, which is what the very definition of happiness is. So talk to us about the framework you developed and how you're using your frameworks to help other people, because you've learned how to now live a happy life and how to rely on um, uh, emotions that will serve you and abandon the emotions that are not serving. So how, what is the name of your framework and how are you using that to help other people? Yeah, so the program that I've developed, I call it the comeback formula because you're coming back, you're, you're getting back to life, but but not the old life that you um, had before. A better life. And a better life, yes. Um, and so I take my clients through a 12-week process where I compile everything I've learned and failed at and tried the hard way. And I take them through... Um, number one, creating the lifestyle changes of just like getting toxic patterns out of their life, like being on their phone right when they wake up and like consuming social media and and so many more um, things. But I take them through the lifestyle changes they need to have, how to learn how to talk to themselves differently in order to rewire their brain, um, how to make goals and like actually create a map of what they want their life to look like so that they can start taking the action steps to show up as that person um, that lives that life. And um, then also working through the emotional baggage to let go of those emotions that are no longer serving them and rewrite memories from the past. Um, even so they don't have to be triggered like I was with talking to people with chronic illness again. Um, and then like so many more things than that, but just learning how to use a tool of your brain and listen to your body and actually get on the same team as your body. So you can trust yourself and you can have your own back in life. And you don't have to like be scared of like crashing again. Or if you do experience a symptom, you know, you have the control on how you respond and it doesn't have to control you anymore. So that is become my biggest passion. I never saw myself doing this, but it literally lights my soul on fire and it is just so cool. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to start crying, but it it's cool. just like, it's, it's just amazing to be able to walk people through that and um, see them believe in themselves again. Well, it's okay for you to cry because it's going to make me cry now too. So it's, it's really cool. <laughs> So talk to us about how folks can get in touch with you so that um, they can work with someone who's been on this journey, who's had to go through this journey, who's had to abandon the emotional home, which wasn't serving her and has now found a place where she can love herself and help herself heal and live the life that um, she was she was created to live. Talk to us about how folks can get in touch with you so they can join you on this comeback program. Yeah, so um, I am very active on my Instagram. I'm at Liz Campbell, like the soup, 
Health, so Liz Campbell Health, and I'm always there sharing trainings and tips. And if you would like to work with me or learn more about what I do and how to work with me, um, just DM me on there. And I'm always loving getting to connect with y'all and all my amazing people on there. And so just don't be um, hesitant to reach out and ask any questions you have. So Liz, now let's talk about one last thing you can help our folks with. Um, if, um, if God forbid your mom came walking into your room right after this podcast, this woman who was so large a part of your journey, who helped you to get through all these very difficult challenges that you've had to go through and to put you in a place where you can have the transformation you've now had, where you can now live the best life you can live and live the life you were created to live. If that woman came in and she showed you that she was uh, in the yard and she had been bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't get reinfected and have to deal with all the challenges that folks have to deal with when they're on a chronic Lyme disease journey? I would recommend learning how to, number one, like get a coach, get a me, get, get someone else that you trust on your team so that you can have the tools to get out of the cycle of chronic stress. And so that infection doesn't have to affect you and you can take your health into your own hands and you don't have to live as a victim to that fear anymore and learn how to regulate your nervous system. One, learn how to let go of that emotional baggage, holding you back from your past and create a sustainable, healthy lifestyle to move forward because you can and it is more than possible and you do not want to repeat you do not have to fear getting sick and staying sick forever Liz Campbell thank you for joining us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast of course it was my pleasure and thank y'all so 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 much thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest Liz Campbell to our listeners we have a call to action first if you'd like to learn more about Liz please visit our Instagram page at Liz Campbell Health Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.